Today's read, Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization, written by Anthony T. Browder, Part 3, The African Renaissance, Chapter 8, The World's Best Kept Secret. In the past, I have frequently stated that the history of African Americans is the best kept secret on the planet over the years. As a result of studies and travels, I have expanded that statement and can now say with certainty that the history of Africans worldwide is the world's best kept secret. A secret is described as something known only to a certain person or persons and purposely kept from the knowledge of others. Most people of African descent know little or nothing of their recent history, let alone their ancestral history, which includes major accomplishments in every endeavor known to man. I have met math teachers who knew nothing about the African contributions to math, ministers who could not properly place African people in the Bible, physicians who had never heard of Imhotep, and students from Southern Africa who knew nothing about Nile Valley history. One factor that all of these people had in common was that they had been educated by the very people who had written them out of their own history. Carter G. Woodson, in one of his most significant works, The Miseducation of the Negro, reminded his audience, philosophers have long conceded that every man has two educations, that which is given to him, and the other, that which he gives himself. Of the two kinds, the latter is by far the more desirable. Indeed, all that is most worthy in man he must work out and conquer for himself. It is that which constitutes our real and best nourishment. What we are merely taught seldom nourishes the mind like that which we teach ourselves. We live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with information. How that information is presented to us, its accuracy and how it is perceived, determines our perception of reality. Learning to develop critical thinking skills is the first lesson one must master in pursuit of the other education that Dr. Woodson referenced. Critical thinking skills allow people to become aware of hierarchical levels of thought, which gives them the capacity to assume greater control over their lives. The three essential levels of cognitive thought are the literal, where one learns to accept all information at face value and never looks beneath the surface for additional details. The inferential, where one learns to infer or read between the lines and sees the hidden or dual meaning in information that is presented. The evaluative, where one learns to make an intelligent decision based upon <coughs> the comparison of various sources of information, particularly those drawn from one's own personal experiences. The objective of critical thinking is to learn how not to take all information literally, to read between the lines for deeper understanding, and then 
evaluate that information by comparing it with other sources of knowledge. This process expands one's mind and opens up new vistas for learning. It is the means by which one may be resurrected from mental death and experience a profound rebirth of consciousness. Who defaced Head M. Aket? If one understands the evaluative method of thinking and applies that knowledge to the evolution of the names associated with the statue we now call the Sphinx, one will understand how inappropriate the term is. To the Greeks, the Sphinx was a monster who strangled innocent passers-by. To the Arabs, it represented Abu Hal, the great father of terror. To the Africans, who created the statue, it represented Her M. Aket, the physical symbol of the spiritual concept of the power of God manifested in man. Many stories have been written concerning the riddle of the Sphinx, but one of the most perplexing riddles to date is who defaced Her Emaket? When and why? A number of people have attributed this dastardly deed to Napoleon Bonaparte. I am aware of no written evidence which actually links Napoleon to the shooting off of the nose and lips of Hedy Marquette, although rumors have persisted for more than 150 years. I have now come to realize that it is through Napoleon's desire to document the history of Egypt that his culpability can be proven. In 1981, I was informed by a representative of the Egyptian embassy in Washington, D.C., that they had petitioned the British government for the return of certain sections of the head of the Sphinx. To date, the British Museum has acknowledged having possession of only the beard. In response to a letter of investigation, I was informed by a representative from the director's office of the British Museum that the British Museum does not possess the entire beard of the Sphinx. It has a fragment only, about one-thirtieth of the whole beard. The British Museum's fragment was presented to the museum in 1818. A few years ago, it was decided in Egypt to carry out considerable structural repairs and conservation of the Sphinx, and someone suggested that the fragment of the beard in the British Museum should be returned for incorporation in any reconstruction. The British Museum is not allowed by law to return objects, but we were prepared to cooperate in so far as we could. Negotiations therefore led to the proposal that we should make a long-term loan of the fragment to Egypt for the planned reconstruction. In response to a direct inquiry regarding Napoleon's involvement with the destruction of Her Emaket, the museum official stated that the head of the Sphinx was damaged long before Napoleon reached Egypt. I was then provided with copies of prints to support that assertion. 
One of the documents sent to me was a copy of page 36 from the April 1991 issue of National Geographic. This copy referenced an article written by the American archaeologist Mark Lanier, who is directing who is directing the reconstruction of the Sphinx. Lanier commented, I sought clues from history and archaeology for the computer reconstruction of the Sphinx. An early 15th century Arab historian reported that the face had been disfigured in that time, yet to this day the damage is wrongly attributed to Napoleon's troops. Scholars accompanying the French invasion of 1798 recorded the monolith and the antiquities opening Egypt to European scholarship. I have assembled a collection of portraits of Hedemaket that were drawn over a period of 100 years from 1698 to 1798, showing these illustrations are the only evidence currently available showing the deterioration of the statue over the years. Careful observation reveals that the greatest destruction took place during Napoleon's occupation of Egypt. And the book shows six illustrations um, from 1698 to 1798. And it shows that the greatest destruction was during the time period when um, Napoleon's savants were there in Egypt. We know for certain that the last three drawings were made between the time the savants arrived in Egypt on July 1st, 1798, and the time that they left Egypt in September of 1801, while it is evident that there was partial damage to the nose of Hedemaket by the year 1755, we can say with certainty that the greatest disfiguration occurred during the three years that Napoleon's troops were in Egypt. This body of evidence is circumstantial, but it gives credence to the old adage that a picture is worth a thousand words. Until there is reason to believe otherwise, Napoleon must bear some responsibility for the damage done to Head and Marquette. Others may try to defend him and place the blame on the shoulders of someone else, but in the final analysis, the nose knows. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Reclaiming African History Through Symbolic Interpretation Arnold Toynbee was a world-renowned historian whose 12-volume work, A Study of History, divided world history into various civilizations and traced their rise, decline, and fall regarding people of African descent, Toynbee stated. When we classify mankind by color, 
the only one of the primary races which has not made a creative contribution to any of our 21 civilizations is the black race. With minds such as Toynbee's and those who have preceded and followed him in directing the educational institutions of the world, there is little wonder why Egypt has been removed from Africa and placed in the quote-unquote Middle East. These actions have contributed mightily to the inability of people to think of Africa and Africans in a favorable light. While the people and history of Africa were being appropriated, their religion, philosophy, philosophy, science, and symbols were stripped of all traces of their Africanness modified to suit a new cultural orientation and then reintroduced into society as quote-unquote original creations. When Kemet was conquered by foreigners, it was not uncommon to find the images of African personalities modified to reflect the appearance of the new rulers of the nation. A small statue of a sphinx on display in the British Museum actually states that the face of the statue was reworked during the Roman occupation of Egypt. A visit to the catacombs of Alexandria, Egypt, reveals numerous images of African Neturu with European faces. The constant manipulation of African images reflect a psychological need that the foreigners had to project themselves into a history and culture that was not their own. The interesting fact about cultural thievery is that it has continued throughout the ages. The manipulation of the image of Ramesses II provides an excellent example. Ramesses II was the king of Kemet during the 19th dynasty. He ruled from approximately 1292 to 1225 BCE. Ramesses II is regarded as one of the most prolific builders in Kemet. He completed the Great Hall of the Temple of Amon-Re at the Pet-Isut Karnak Temple, and he constructed the Outer Pylon and the Great Court of the Southern Ipet, Luxor Temple. Ramesses also took credit for many of the buildings of his predecessors, often replacing their names with his. One of Ramesses' most impressive creations was his marvelous temple at Abu Simbel, which was built near the border of Kemet and Nubia. Ramesses also had a number of wives and is said to have fathered more than 140 children. There have been numerous depictions of Ramesses II throughout the past 40 years, and few have portrayed him as an African. Probably one of the most well-known portrayals was Yul Brenner in the 1956 film The Ten Commandments. In that motion picture, all of the Egyptians, Ramesses, Moses, and the well-publicized cast of thousands were played by Europeans. Only the slaves and Nubians were portrayed as African. In May of 1966, National Geographic featured a story on the international project to save the temples of Abu Simbel 
from destruction. That issue contained a series of illustrations portraying the design, construction, and dedication of the Temple of Ramesses as it may have appeared more than 3,000 years ago. In the illustrations, every Egyptian was portrayed as a, as a European and the servants were presented as Africans. Similarly, in a 1983 characterization of Ramesses in a Ripley's Believe It or Not comic strip, he was depicted as European and his foes as African. There are symbols which originated in the Nile Valley that have since become indelibly linked to corporate identities of multi-million dollar enterprises, yet one would never associate Africans with these images because of the successful manipulation of African images and history. The, the caduceus is currently used as a symbol representing a variety of disciplines in the medical profession. General practitioners, dentists, ophthalmologists, and veterinarians all use various modifications of the caduceus as logos. This symbol has been associated with the Roman god Mercury and his Greek predecessor Hermes. At one time, it was referred to as the Staff of Hermes. Both Mercury and Hermes evolved from the Nile Valley Necher Jehudi, who was also associated with medicine. There are a number of carvings in Egypt where one can see Jehudi holding a staff with a cobra intertwined around it. This emblem can also be found adorning the walls of many ancient temples. The winged sun disk, a symbol of Heru, was later combined with the serpentine staff and became the symbol now referred to as the caduceus. The RX abbreviation for prescriptions was derived from the Latin recipe, which means to take. The RX symbol was first introduced by the Roman physician Galen, who used this sign when writing prescriptions for his patients. The RX sign is but a stylized version of the Uchat I, which is a distinctly African symbol that represents several complex themes. The right eye is a symbol for the sun and is called the Eye of Heru. The left eye, which the RX represents, is a symbol for the moon and is called the Eye of Jehudi. As an amulet, this symbol placed the wearer under the protection of Jehudi and brought good health, happiness, and protection from harm. These expressions of good fortune are embodied in the word Uchat, which meant whole or sound of mind and body, that is health or freedom from disease. The Eye of Haru is also known as the Eye of Ra. Both symbols represent Neturu, associated with the sun and express the divine omnipotence of the creator. When used as an amulet, it places the wearer under the protection of God, and when incorporated into a logo, it has been used to represent the omnipotent objectives of that particular company. The Columbia Broadcasting System, CBS, has used a modified version of the Eye of Heru on their television stations for years. As recently as 1991, an eye was used in an equilateral triangle 
as a backdrop during the station identification breaks. For the last several years in some areas, the CBS local news broadcasts have been referred to as eyewitness news. According to CBS Incorporated since 1952, the CBS television network has been the world's largest advertising medium in terms of dollar value of advertising. CBS also owns W.B. Saunders Company, which is the world's largest medical publisher. As the television industry expanded, more channels were added to the VHF brand, and later the UHF channels were created. This was soon followed by the introduction of cable television, which can carry up to 60 channels. With the rapid expansion of cable TV, it was not too surprising to find that one of the early giants in cable TV, home box office HBO, followed CBS's lead and incorporated an eye into its logo. Symbols of pyramids and sphinxes have been used in thousands of corporate logos and designs throughout the world. Their use is an indication of the great admiration that artists and business persons have had for the power and knowledge which existed in the Nile Valley as recently as 3,000 years ago. If Arnold Toynbee were still alive, it would behoove him to revise his comments concerning the civilizations of mankind to correctly read. When we classify mankind by color, the only one of the primary races which has made a creative contribution to all of our 21 civilizations is the African race. The Politics of Hair and the Nile Valley. In my first publication, from the broader file, 22 essays on the African-American experience included is an essay entitled the politics of hair. It examined the many hairstyles worn by African Americans during a 60 year period and associated them with gains and losses in the arena of political and civil rights. This essay pointed out that in the 60s, when African Americans began wearing African dress and hairstyles, they began developing an African consciousness. This directly correlated to their desire to struggle for and achieve civil rights. By the mid-70s, when the cultural emphasis declined, there was a corresponding decline in political activity and an erosion of civil rights and legislation. Hairstyles often relate to consciousness. In the late 1980s, two African-American females were fired from their jobs at two different Washington, D.C. hotels for refusing to change their cornrowed hairstyles to a more quote-unquote professional style. These women subsequently sued their employers and not only won a handsome settlement, but they also won the right to express their ethnicity in the workplace. The media has played a major role in influencing perceptions of style, consciousness, and culture. Many people 
mistakenly believed Bo Derek was responsible for the creation of cornrows. She may have popularized the hairstyle in the movie Tin, but it had existed thousands of years earlier in Africa and among Africans in the Americas. Hollywood has been greatly responsible for creating incorrect perceptions of Africa, primarily because most people are too lazy to study African history on their own. Take a minute and visualize an image of Cleopatra. If you are over 35, chances are a picture of Elizabeth Taylor popped into your mind. In 1963, Taylor starred in a multi-million dollar production of Cleopatra, which forever ingrained her image in the minds of millions of people as an accurate one. Many people cannot imagine the Egyptians wearing African hairstyles, but they certainly did. And very seldom are these images portrayed on the screens or in print. There are hundreds of mummies, statues, wigs, and drawings which clearly illustrate the texture and hairstyles of African people who lived in the Nile Valley in ancient times. These images are often suppressed or replaced with inaccurate ones that create a false historical perspective of a truly African characteristic. Chapter 9 How to Free Your African Mind Mental Bondage is Invisible Violence Formal Physical Slavery has Ended in the United States. Mental Slavery continues to this present day. This slavery affects the minds of all people and in one way it is worse than physical slavery alone. That is, the person who is in mental bondage will be self-contained. Not only will that person fail to challenge beliefs and patterns of thought which control him, he will defend and protect those beliefs and patterns of thought virtually with his last dying effort. Asa G. Hilliard III, from the introduction to the 1976 reprint of Stolen Legacy. The Man in the Mirror, The Psychological Effects of Mental Slavery. Mental slavery is a condition affecting people regardless of their race, nationality, or economic status. The perceptions of reality that you have in your mind will either free you or keep you enslaved. One has to ask the question, what has been the cumulative effect of the manipulation of the history of African people? This question is of particular importance to people of African descent. What has happened to the minds of generations of African Americans who grew up believing that straight hair was quote-unquote good hair and that light skin was quote-unquote fair skin? What has happened to the minds of millions of people who grew up hearing that your skin is too dark, your nose is too wide, your lips are too thick, and your hair is too nappy. What happens to a people who grow up believing that the image of the man 
or woman who stares back at them in the mirror is inferior and incapable of correct thoughts or actions. Over a period of years, these people would become mentally enslaved to thoughts of inferiority and if given the opportunity to change the physical appearance of the images that stare back at them in the mirror, they probably would. If given the opportunity today, millions of African Americans would gladly pay a plastic surgeon to do to them what Napoleon allegedly did to the Sphinx, that is, change their noses and lips in an attempt to become something other than what God created. Many people mistakenly believe that money will bring them happiness, but money, without consciousness, will usually lead to self-destruction of some form or another. Take, for example, entertainers who serve as larger-than-life role models for most youth and many adults. They have money and fame, but most lack a sense of security and cultural identity. A survey of a select group of African-American entertainers will show that as their popularity increased, they crossed over commercially and physically. As these entertainers crossed over, you could see a profound change in their hair, their noses, and their lips. No person in the entertainment industry has ever undergone a makeover as dramatic as Michael Jackson. Analyzing his career, one can see that the most radical changes took place after the release of the Thriller album in 1983. This album became the largest selling record in the history of the music industry and made the name Michael Jackson a household word. The tremendous success of the Thriller album, more than 42 million have been sold to date, sent shockwaves throughout the show business industry. Show business has been described by some executives as 5% show and 95% business. Entertainers like their athletic counterparts in the sports arena or historical counterparts on the plantations are commodities to be marketed in a manner similar to Apple computers, Toyotas, or Nike sneakers. The challenge faced by those responsible for marketing Michael Jackson after the enormous success of the Thriller album was formidable. How is one to market the world's most popular entertainer when the image of African Americans is the most consistently negatively portrayed image in the world? A simple solution for a complex problem was found almost immediately. As we can now see, it was much easier to change the image of one African American than to change the image of all of them. Thus, the new Michael Jackson was remade in a manner similar to Frankenstein, except that his body parts were all artificial. Jackson was given a new nose, mouth, chin, hair, eyes, and skin. In one of his tunes, Michael declares to the world that it doesn't matter if you are black or white, and he certainly speaks from experience because he has been both. 
The music video industry was spawned by the success of the Michael Jackson videos that emerged from his Thriller album. Since that time, music videos have been become an important component of both cable and commercial television as well as the record industry. In fact, oftentimes it is the images in the video that often sell the record and they usually have little or nothing to do with the lyrics. Sex and violence are used as tools to promote record sales. Females are portrayed as sex objects and males are looking to get paid. The youths and adults who spend hours weekly viewing these images begin to internalize them as acceptable modes of behavior. Many of the problems we see in the African-American communities throughout the country can be traced to negative self-images instilled in us from birth and perpetuated by the media to which we expose ourselves. Television is the most powerful form of mass communication in the world. It stimulates emotion while simultaneously diminishing thought and creativity. Television programming presents a quick fix to complex problems while exploiting the fears and manipulating the desires of the viewer. The more one watches television, educational programming excluded, the more detached one becomes from reality. It is as addictive as alcohol, cigarettes, and crack. A rock, a recent television survey conducted by Nielsen Media Research disclosed that African-American households nationwide watch 48% more television than all other households. This figure averages out to 69 hours and 48 minutes per week for African Americans, as opposed to a national average of 47 hours and 6 minutes. African American women and children between the ages of 2 and 17 watch more television than any other segment of the American population. African American children and teens were said to watch more television than any other group of children surveyed. The group who watches the least amount of television is also the group who has the highest level of academic achievement. They are the Asian American population. To many, television is viewed as simply a means of entertainment, but any time a people spend more time being entertained than working, those people and their offspring will become a burden to society. Most of the roles played by African Americans on television are limited to situation comedies. Very few, if any, have been regularly featured in dramas or as characters representing integrity and substance and decent family values. These are not images foreign to the African American experience. They are plentiful, but they are seldom presented for the general public to see. Other ethnic groups understand the power of television and they exercise a sense of cultural responsibility by seeing to it that their group is represented in a balanced perspective. On the whole, African Americans are so starved for images that they will accept a negative image of themselves over none at all. 
The popularity of In Living Color attests to this fact. Civil rights organizations have been fighting for years to destroy the stereotypes aired weekly on In Living Color. In all my years of television viewing, I have never seen females referred to as bitches and whores as often as they are on that one program. Does this behavior become more palatable because it is black folk talking about black folk? I don't think so. The African-American community should be outraged and writing letters to the Fox television network demanding immediate changes, but I doubt seriously this will happen. We accept negative images because that is what we have been programmed to believe we deserve. Consider the fact that the church is the most powerful institution within the African-American community. It is the only financially viable organization we own and operate. The church has been the base from which our civil rights movement evolved. Our political leaders honed their thinking skills there, and it has been the source of all of our music. If this institution means so much to our community, why would we allow a television program to make a mockery of it, its pastors, deacons, and congregation? The program that I'm referring to is Amen. Even though this program had a brief network run, it will continue to be viewed for eternity in syndication reruns. To those who feel television is simply a form of entertainment, consider this scenario. Due to the enormous popularity of In Living Color, Keenan Ivory Wayans is given the opportunity to create a television comedy of his own choosing. After great consideration, Mr. Wayans decides to produce a spin-off of Amen called Shalom, and it will feature the hilarious escapades of a rabbi's daughter who disguises herself as a male in order to fill the vacancy of a new rabbi in the temple. This program could have all the makings of an Emmy-winning smash, but I doubt seriously if it would ever make it out of production, let alone air on television because of the expected protests from the Jewish community. African-centered approaches to children's activities. In light of the extreme difficulties facing African-Americans, it is important that new strategies be developed and implemented to ensure our survival. An important part of any plan must include the mental, physical, and cultural nourishing of African-American children. They are the ones who will be confronted with racist stereotypes in the media, classrooms, and society. A constant diet of hopelessness will ultimately darken their mental skies and make them believe that their future is bleak, and they will, therefore, develop these self-destructive behavior patterns so many of our youth currently exhibit. Building self-esteem in any child is an arduous task, and building self-esteem in an African-American child is even more difficult, but it can be accomplished. Several years ago, the Black-Owned Communications Alliance published an ad showing a young African-American male child wearing a towel as a cape and pretending to be a superhero. As this child looked into the mirror, he saw the image of a European man staring back at him. 
The caption accompanying, accompanying this photograph asked the problem, the probing question, what's wrong with this picture? What happens to children who grow up seeing everyone else portrayed as heroes while they are given a steady diet of images portraying themselves as less than desirable? These children grow up falsely believing in the superiority of other groups while doubting themselves. All one has to do is look throughout any neighborhood in the country and you will find groups of unemployed and underachieving African-American males with no real vision of themselves for the future. Images that are formed in early childhood generally stay with us for the rest of our lives. In the final analysis, television and radio are media that are too powerful to be left in the hands of children without proper supervision. Jane Healy, educational psychologist and author of Endangered Minds, Why Our Children Don't Think, suggests that TV has the potential of reversing the evolution of the human brain. Healy feels that electronic media, unstable family patterns, hectic lifestyles, and poor teaching methods all contribute to the changing of the brain structure within children. Scientific studies have shown that young minds are malleable. What children see and do on a daily basis changes their brain's function and structure. Any activity engaging a child's interest will stimulate the imagination and enrich the brain. The converse is also true. One Canadian researcher has documented a 20% creativity decrease in children and adults who have been exposed to television on a regular basis. Every day, parents are provided with opportunities where they can expose their children to new information while stimulating their young minds. When my daughter was in kindergarten, she informed me that her class was having a Halloween party and that she wanted to go dressed as Cinderella. A question raced through my mind, why Cinderella? As I reflected on the question, I suddenly remembered that the movie had recently been re-released and advertisements were seen everywhere. This is obviously what influenced my daughter. I told my child that I felt a Cinderella costume was inappropriate and we should look for a more acceptable alternative. While walking through the aisle of a local children's store, we saw costumes of Superman, Batman, Miss Piggy, Wonder Woman, witches and ghosts. I saw these costumes as figments of other people's imaginations, which could not reinforce within my child a healthy cultural self-image. As we left the store in disgust, I promised my daughter that I would make her a costume to wear to the party. I accepted the fact that Halloween costumes are designed based upon imaginary creatures, and I decided to put my imagination to work. The costume I made for my daughter was patterned after an image I had seen in Egypt of the sky nature named Newt. This image can be found in the Temple of Dendera and several tombs in the Valley of the Kings where Newt's body can be seen stretching across the heavens while her feet and hands touch the earth. Scenes depicting Newt as the nighttime sky show her swallowing the red sun disk as it descends into the western horizon. The sun is then shown moving through the body of Newt 
and it emerges from her womb in the eastern horizon as a golden ball of light. This image of Newt is profound because it reinforces the Nile Valley concept of women as being so significant that they are shown giving birth to the sun, an ageless symbol for God. If parents allow their children to dress as monsters, murderers, or ghouls, they should not be too surprised if the children start acting like these characters. Conversely, if children are exposed to ageless images of wisdom and beauty, there is a great likelihood that they will emulate those traits in their behavior patterns. A creative approach to Halloween allows parents to turn a seemingly innocent event into an opportunity to teach cultural awareness. This same methodology can apply to holidays and other activities involving youth and adults. The only limitations to creating them exist in your mind. Children are constantly bombarded with images that glorify underachievers such as Bart Simpson or violence-prone role models such as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There have been numerous accounts of small children seriously injuring their friends while imitating the martial arts aficionados known as the Ninja Turtles. Recently, a London newspaper gave an account of a five-year-old child dressed in a Batman costume who found his father's gun and killed him while pretending that he was a bad guy. These types of stories have been reported for years, and while they are certainly nothing new, they have been increasing in frequency and the intensity of violence over the last decade. Over the last decade. In recent months, a number of school principals have enacted regulations forbidding students from wearing the popular Bart Simpson underachiever t-shirt for obvious reasons. The enormous success of The Simpsons has spawned a number of imitations, including numerous characterizations of Black Bart and the entire Simpson family as African Americans. The irony of it all is that Matt Groening, the creator of The Simpsons, patterned them after black stereotypes. Bart is portrayed as the typical underachieving black male child with a serious attitude and a fade hairstyle. Bart's sister, Lisa, plays saxophone in the school band, and her mentor is a black blues musician. Homer is often referred to as Homie by his wife, Madge, and the name for the Simpson family is similar in spirit to the character of Simple, which was popularized by Langston Hughes in numerous newspaper columns. Many of Hughes's humorous sketches of black life were collected in the 1961 publication, The Best of Simple. As a part of my ongoing responsibility to educate my daughter Atlantis, I took her to Egypt in 1989 on one of my annual study tours. At the suggestion of a friend, my daughter and I co-authored a book entitled My First Trip to Africa, which we published in 1991. This book chronicled the experiences of Atlantis's visit to Egypt, the cities and monuments she saw, and the people she met. My first trip to Africa highlighted the African origins of Kemet and its influence on world civilization, all from a child's perspective. During the spring of 1991, a parent gave a copy of my first trip to Africa to her 10-year-old son, who later used it as the subject of a book reporting class. His teacher reprimanded this child in front of the entire class and declared that his book report was unacceptable because... It was entitled My First Trip to Africa 
and the book report was about Egypt. The teacher then remarked, everyone knows that Egypt is not in Africa. Needless to say, when news of this incident reached the child's mother, she immediately demanded a meeting with the school principal and her child's teacher. She then proceeded to give them both a lesson in history and geography. It is unfortunate that in this day and time, and with the wealth of information available, so many people have remained ignorant of the history of Egypt and its location in Northeast Africa. It just so happened that players in this unfortunate incident were of different ethnic persuasions. The child and parent were of African ancestry, while the teacher and principal were of European descent. But because most people have been victims of a systematic process of miseducation, the roles could have easily been reversed and yielded the same outcome. There have been numerous attempts to represent traditional white mythological figures as black ones, with some interesting and revealing results. During last year's Christmas season, a shopping mall in suburban Washington, D.C. hired an African-American to dress as Santa for photos with children. After numerous complaints from African-American adults, the black Santa was replaced with a white one because those parents insisted that their children be photographed with the quote-unquote real Santa Claus. Parents who are ignorant of their history and culture are incapable of properly directing the lives of their children. As youths, we were all told about Santa Claus and believed in him. As we grew older, we questioned his existence and asked our parents how it was possible for Santa to travel to every home in the world on the same night. The homes without chimneys posed an even more perplexing problem for parents who often met the inquiry with creative explanations. Participation in the Santa Claus myth deprives parents and children of an opportunity to explore their relationship and develop a deeper bond based on truth and responsibility. In light of the increasing popularity of Kwanzaa, other options are now readily available. African-centered approaches to life the purpose of education is to prepare young people to live and serve the society and to transmit the knowledge, skills, and values and attitudes of the society. Wherever education fails in any of these fields, there is social unrest as people find that their education has prepared them for a future which is not open to them. Mualimu Julius Nyerere, President of Tanzania. In the 1960s, a young African-Caribbean man coined a phrase which inspired African-Americans and created a movement that inspired people of African descent throughout the world while simultaneously intimidating people of European ancestry. The young man's name was Stokely Carmichael, and the phrase that he added to the American lexicon was Black Power. In 1980, another young man, this one of African-American descent, introduced a word that similarly mobilized one segment of society while alienating another. That man's name was Dr. Molefi Asante, and his cultural contribution was the creation of the concept of Afrocentricity. Since its introduction, there have been a number of discussions on the topic. Debates have focused on what is Afrocentric and what is not, who is Afrocentric and who is not. However, the heart of the Afrocentric controversy has centered around education, African-centered education. 
Afrocentricity or African-centeredness has been defined by Dr. Asante as a frame of reference wherein phenomena are viewed from the perspective of the African person. It centers one. It centers on placing people of African origin in control of their lives and attitudes about the world. This means that we examine every aspect of the dislocation of African people, culture, economics, psychology, health, and religion. As an intellectual theory, Afrocentricity is the study of the ideas and events from the standpoint of Africans as the key players rather than victims. This theory becomes, by virtue of an authentic relationship to the centrality of our own reality, a fundamentally empirical project. It is Africa asserting itself intellectually and psychologically, breaking the bonds of Western domination in the mind as an analog for breaking those bonds in every other field. Afrocentricity is not a black version of Eurocentricity. Neither is it centered upon notions of racial exclusivity. Not every African person has the capacity to become African-centered. In fact, a number of advocates of African-centered issues are not of direct African ancestry. The primary objection that many people have regarding Afrocentricity is the fear that it is racist in its condemnation of European history. Another misconception is that any education that is centered on Africa could not possibly teach anything of value. Of course, both perspectives are seriously flawed and represent xenophobic views that have been ingrained in the minds of most people since childhood. The reaction to African-centered education by the established leaders in American education has been quite harsh, as expected. It has been accused of being a fabrication of history designed just to make black children feel good about themselves. Former Education Secretary William Bennett offered the following remarks in a speech before the Heritage Foundation in 1991. If I were Grand Kleagle of the Ku Klux Klan, I could think of no better way to keep blacks out of the mainstream of American life than to give them a curriculum which is entirely divorced from the mainstream of American life. Black children need a bath in the culture of America and the West. They need an immersion in it, an immersion in it for their sake, not for our sake. These asinine remarks are quite similar to those made by the defenders of traditional white supremacist curricula during the 1960s when black studies was being advocated. They stated that it was a fabrication of lies and anti-white rhetoric which was being spewed forth by power-crazed black nationalists. Predictions of the impending demise of black studies and its negative effect on academia have not materialized. Not only is black studies alive and well, but it has also played a major role in the emergence of the African-centered movement. A number of college students who majored in black studies 25 years ago are now among the most outspoken proponents of Afrocentricity. Many who are now tenured professors and presidents of colleges and universities are advocating their cultural viewpoints from within these institutions. One of Newton's laws or physics stated that for every action, there was an equal and opposite reaction. One of the more acceptable 
acceptable reactions to Afrocentricity is multiculturalism. Just as in the 60s, when black studies led to the development of minority studies, demands for an African-centered approach to education in the 90s has been met with an increasing cry of a need to teach the history of culture, history and culture of all people. A correct interpretation of multiculturalism is critical in order to avoid the failures of the existing educational system. Asante's views on the matter are as follows. Multiculturalism in education is a non-hierarchical approach that respects and celebrates a variety of cultural perspectives on world phenomena. Multiculturalists assert that education to have integrity must begin with the proposition that all humans have contributed to world development and the flow of knowledge and information and that most human achievements are the result of mutually interactive international effort. The Afrocentric idea must be the stepping stone from which the multicultural idea is launched. A truly authentic multicultural education, therefore, must be based upon the Afrocentric initiative. If this step is skipped, multicultural curricula, as they are increasingly being defined by white resistors, will evolve without any substantive infusion of African-American content, and the African-American child will continue to be lost in the Eurocentric framework of education. The development of Afrocentrism and multiculturalism was a natural response to a Eurocentric system which has defended and protected its involvement in the history of slavery, colonialism, segregation, apartheid, racism, and neo-racism. There is no way a people can justify the enslavement and the enactment of genocidal policies against other humans without the creation of religious and educational systems to legitimize their actions. The declaration of one's belief in a God and knowledge is antithetical to such actions, yet for the last 500 years we have been exposed to lies such as the white man's burden as justification for the conquest of Africa, the Americas, Australia, Asia, and the islands of the Pacific. It would stand to reason that as the oppressed people of the world begin to assume positions of leadership and define themselves and their history for themselves, their former oppressors would decry such acts as ludicrous. As Dr. John Henry Clark has stated in numerous lectures, we have forgotten a recurring fact of history. That is, powerful people never have to prove anything to anyone. And by extension, powerful people never apologize to powerless people for the actions they take in order to remain in power. We will have taken one giant step forward when we face this reality. Powerful people never teach powerless people how to take their power away from them. The importance of study groups. Within the past 15 years, there has been a dramatic increase in the production and availability of material on African and African-American history and culture. It is safe to say that there has been more information produced in recent years in the form of books, tapes, and lectures than at any point in time within the past 500 years. At one point, it was an accepted belief that if you wanted to keep something hidden from black people, put it in a book. 
for increasing numbers of African Americans, fortunately, this is no longer the case. Information which once sat isolated on bookshelves and libraries and bookstores is now finding its way into conversations at the dinner table, in churches, private gatherings, and the media. As a result, people are now beginning to reevaluate their lives, the lives of their parents and antecedents, the lives of their children and those yet to be born. People are coming together in communities throughout the country to discuss the secrets that they have uncovered in books. The development of study groups is one of the fastest growing phenomena in recent memory. They have had a profound impact on school systems in Washington, D.C., New York City, Atlanta, Detroit, Chicago, Los Angeles, Portland, Oregon, and elsewhere. Study groups have also had a favorable influence on churches, businesses, and the media. There are many types of study groups. Some focus primarily on African history. Others devote their meeting to topics relating to spirituality, literature, economic empowerment, and numerous other themes. The following guidelines are to be considered for the development of a study group in your area. These guidelines are general in nature and will vary from group to group depending on the size and the level of knowledge members bring to the gatherings. Purpose and Objectives 1. The express purpose of a study group is to create an environment where people of like minds can meet with regularity to discuss various aspects of African history and culture. The purpose of these gatherings should not be for the selfish benefit of any individual or the group. Its objective should be for the attainment of accurate information about African people and the development of strategies for the practical application of that knowledge in the personal life, family life, and community of each member. Two, understanding that study groups may consist of people from various backgrounds, educational, economic, religious, etc. It should not be the purpose of the group to espouse a specific religious ideology unless that is agreed upon at the outset. Three, members of the study group should agree to abide by specific guidelines for the benefit of the group. It is highly recommended that the 10 virtues as outlined in Stolen Legacy be used since they were originally created as prerequisites for personal development. The first three virtues, control of thought, control of action, and steadfastness are of critical importance in developing one's personal behavior, which will ultimately determine the success of the group. Structure. One, the structure of a study group will vary depending on its size. It is recommended that a group consist of a minimum of five and a maximum of 25 persons. It is always best to start out with a smaller group of members, develop a strong base, and then expand. Two, meetings should be held no more than twice a month, nor less than once a month. The length of each meeting should be one and a half to two hours per session. It is quite natural for new members to be excited about embarking on new fields of study and sharing information with people of like minds, but other responsibilities must not be overlooked in the process. Three, a regular meeting place must be established. It should not be in someone's home. Libraries, 
churches and schools all have facilities that are available to the public at little or no cost. They should be utilized. In many instances, your tax dollars help maintain them. Punctuality is a must. Every meeting should start at the agreed upon time regardless of the number of people present. Care should be taken to minimize distractions and out of courtesy to others, children should not be in attendance. Four, each group should operate through a consensus of its membership. There should be no leader in the traditional sense. Direction should come from a three-person steering committee consisting of an archivist, moderator, and recorder. The members of the steering committee should be elected by the membership, serve a six-month term, and then be replaced by three new members at the completion of their term. The function of the committee is to administer the policies and procedures of the group and maintain a sense of direction. Each member of the steering committee has equal authority and the power of the committee as a whole should be determined by the collective membership. The steering committee's duties are archivist, maintains the historical records of the study group's activities and other relevant documents, moderator, opens all sessions by leading or selecting someone to lead the group in an open ritual, states clearly the goals and objectives of each study session as determined by the group, maintains a balanced and focused flow during discussions by not allowing individuals to dominate the meeting or discussions, 15 minutes prior to the closing of each session, makes certain that the agenda is set for the next meeting. Recorder takes minutes during study group sessions and all steering committee meetings. Five, the selection of reading material to be discussed should be decided by the entire group. Careful consideration must be given to the first three books discussed. They should be books that focus on specific themes and can be easily read and discussed as they will set the tone and direction of future meetings. Books for consideration should include Introduction to African Civilization by John G. Jackson. Africa at the Crossroads by John Henry Clark. Black Man of the Nile and His Family by Yosef Ben-Yakanen. Introduction to Black Studies by Maulana Karenga. Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. From the Browder File by Anthony T. Browder. It is strongly recommended that the group produce a summary of each book discussed as a record of its accomplishments. These summaries can be compiled and distributed at a future date. Operation 1. Begin each session with 15 minutes of quiet time or meditation. This allows each person to put the thoughts of the day behind them and prepare for the activities at hand with a fresh mind. 2. It is recommended that a libation be poured and that the statement of purpose for the group be declared. Following these actions, it is recommended that the objective for the meeting be stated. 3. The room should be set up in a manner to facilitate conversation and chairs should be arranged in a circle if at all possible. Televisions, radios, and phones should be turned off and meetings should be conducted in a serious and orderly manner. If food or refreshments are served, it should be after the meeting. 4. The discussion of materials should be led by the moderator who is responsible for conducting the meeting in a timely manner and soliciting input from as many members as possible. Of course, the more members there are in a group, the more difficult this task will be, but 
Great care must be taken to ensure that one or two persons do not try to dominate the session. 5. The moderator is also responsible for summarizing the discussion and opening the floor for a brief discussion of new business. 6. The moderator or other designated individual should lead the group in a closing prayer or affirmation. The group should be standing in a circle while holding hands. It is important that these meetings be looked upon as a place of safe harbor where brothers and sisters come together to strengthen cultural bonds. Other considerations for study groups. 1. New members should be brought into the group at six-month intervals until the maximum number is reached. Then a new study group can be formed. It becomes very difficult to develop a bond within, within a group if membership is changing on a regular basis. Consistency is the key to the longevity of the group. If a new group is created, members from the original group should serve as the first steering committee until the group has bonded. Then, new steering committee members should be selected from the new membership. 2. The invitation of guests to the study group meetings should be limited to invited speakers and, on occasion, prospective members. The group should avoid inviting guests for any reason other than these. 3. It is recommended that the group attend outside activities such as lectures, conferences, plays, and movies and discuss them in meetings as a change of pace from the regular book discussions. The sharing of audio or videotapes in the meetings will also provide interesting discussions. 4. Plan social activities for the group and their family members during the course of the year. Picnics or retreats during the summer months, Kwanzaa celebrations, and the anniversary of the study group are excellent times to plan special events. 5. Members should select a topic of interest and endeavor to develop a level of expertise. Presentations may be given during the study group meetings in preparation for future community presentations. Churches, schools, and organizations are always interested in speakers who are willing to share their research with others. 6. The study group should consider developing a lecture series and sponsor local and out-of-town presenters. These events will showcase the work of the study group while exposing the community to new information. This activity is also an excellent opportunity to recruit new members for the existing study group or they can start new chapters. The benefits of belonging, belonging to a study group are many. In addition to increasing one's understanding of history and culture, the opportunity to meet people who share your interests can prove to be a source of mental and spiritual relief. In many instances, study group members can purchase books in bulk and receive discounts ranging from 10 to 40% depending upon the merchant. A number of study groups and individuals throughout the country have developed data bases which can be easily accessed with the convenience of a PC and a modem. The struggle for the liberation of the minds of African people is a formidable one. For many will want to cling to the ideas and fears that have played a major role in their miseducation. It must be remembered that the creation of the Negro was a carefully calculated plan which has been developed and implemented over the last 500 years. Any attempts to reverse this process will be a struggle costing time, money, and lives. Frederick Douglass defined the perimeters of a struggle more than 100 years ago when he declared, those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. 
They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its mighty water. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Wow. And so there's a list of resources, resource persons, authors, and lecturers um, provided here. This book was uh, published in the 90s, so we don't have all of these authors. Well, we don't have all of these people available as lecturers, but they're still authors, so their uh, publications are definitely still available. Naeem Akbar, psychologist. Leonard Jeffries, historian, Department of Black Studies, City College of New York. Malefi Asante, historian, chair, Department of African American Studies, Temple University. Jawanza Kunjufu, educational consultant, African American Images. Yosef Ben Yakanen, Egyptologist. Ashra Kwaisi, historian. John Henry Clark, historian. Patricia Newton, psychiatrist. Charles Finch, physician and historian. Edwin J. Nichols, industrial psychologist. Asa G. Hilliard, PhD, educational psychologist and historian. Wade Noble, psychologist. Linus Hoskins, historian. Runoko Rashidi, historian. Donna Marimba Richards, social scientist. James Small, historian. Ivan Van Sertema, anthropologist. Alice Windham, educator, Olmec, and African historian. Organizations, African Echoes, Dus, uh, they have lecturers. Dusabum Museum of African American History, Association for the Study of Classical African Civilization, First World Alliance, lecturers. Black Unity and Spiritual Togetherness, BUST. Institute for Independent Education, Comedic Institute, National Conference of Artists, The Third Eye, Southern Educational Foundation Incorporated, and businesses, Afri Chart Products, Black Classic Press, The Clegg Series, Cultural Circles, Original Art and Reproductions, Malcolm Aaron, Artist and Illustrator, Cultural Projections Unlimited, Graphic Design, Egypt and Illustration, Educational Publications, The Pyramid Complex, Cultural Novelty Items, and Chapter 10, Questions and Answers. I have been lecturing on various topics pertaining to African and African-American history for more than 12 years. During that time, I have received numerous inquiries from people desiring information on a variety of subjects, including religion, philosophy, spirituality, and the practicality of African history. This publication is concluded by sharing with you some of those most frequently asked questions and my responses to them. Question, if the Nile Valley civilization was so great, why did it fall? And if African people were responsible for creating the civilization of ancient Egypt, why are they suffering so? Answer, one of the first lessons history teaches us is that history is cyclical. Historical events follow specific patterns and cycles, which, when studied, yield data that allow a person to understand the sequence of events which lead up to a specific activity and the consequences that follow. In this sense, all history is a current event because the activities which are transpiring today were set 
into motion by events that were initiated at some point in the past. If we understand this basic reality, then we will realize that nothing that comes stays and nothing that goes is lost. Great civilizations have risen and fallen since the beginning of time. Contrary to what many theorists may wish to believe, civilization did not begin at a primitive level and rise steadily, producing cultures which were more sophisticated than the ones that preceded them. On the contrary, once a great civilization fell, it took hundreds of years before one of equal or greater significance evolved. Such is the case with Kemet, a civilization which lasted more than 3,000 years. Many great civilizations of the ancient world have fallen, but none have endured as long as that of Kemet. The United States of the United States of America is only 216 years old and is currently recognized as the mightiest nation on earth, but her power, economy, and technological influence have warned, have waned significantly during the past 30 years. The Roman and Byzantine empires have fallen. The worldwide influence of the Spanish, British, and French has diminished considerably. Many historians and political scientists suggest that a similar fate now confronts the United States of America. The demise of great civilizations is not unique to Kemet or Africa. It is a fact of life. But how one deals with these facts is another matter entirely. It determines your perception of reality and influences your ability to act. With regard to the current status of African people, we must never forget the Maafa, or great disaster, which has befallen the African continent and African people worldwide. With the exception of the Native Americans and the Native Australians, no other people on earth have had their continent snatched away by foreigners. Africans were the only people to have been enslaved and exported to other continents by the millions. These actions have depleted the human and natural resources of Africa while simultaneously developing them in Europe and America. We are still experiencing the repercussions of that event. Although the total number of Africans stolen from their homeland varies greatly from source to source, we can conservatively estimate that a minimum of 50 million people were displaced. When you consider the fact that one-third of the enslaved Africans never survived the transatlantic journey, and of the number who did survive, approximately one-third died during the seasoning or breaking-in process. We are, therefore, talking about the deaths of more than 80 million people. These figures do not take into account the millions of Africans who died before they were loaded aboard the slave ships, or the number of men, women, and children who were raped, beaten to death, or lynched once they arrived in the New World. H.G. Wells' classic novel, War of the Worlds, exemplifies the deep-seated fear Europeans have that aliens would do, do to them what they have done to others. Imagine an alien nation attacking the United States and enslaving its inhabitants. Imagine these beings taking the Washington Monument, the Golden Gate Bridge, and the Statue of Liberty and putting them in their parks and public squares. Visualize alien scientists exhuming the bodies of dead presidents and putting them on display in their museums and art galleries. And then imagine alien children sitting in their classrooms discussing the lives of quote-unquote primitive Americans. 
In many respects, truth is stranger than fiction. One must also be aware of the impact that the Berlin Conference had on African people. Between 1884 and 1885, 14 European nations met in, Brit- met in Berlin, Germany, and agreed to stop fighting among themselves for the possession of Africans. These quote-unquote civilized men decided to end the slave trade, not because it was the moral thing to do, but because they were making the Americans wealthy. They agreed to create a system of colonization and enslave the entire African continent. Africa was subsequently divided by the representatives seated at the table in Berlin, and countries were given new names such as the Gold Coast, Ivory Coast, French Guinea, and the Belgian Congo. These new names reflected the imperialistic intent of the new colonial masters. It wasn't until 72 years later that Africans began to liberate themselves from the economic political, and social control of the Europeans. In 1957, the Gold Coast became the first African nation to gain its independence, and it was renamed Ghana, after an ancient African kingdom. African Americans have been quote-unquote free for 127 years, and the first independent African nation has had its freedom for only 35 years. In reality, Africans are still struggling for their independence in South Africa, South America, and south of the Canadian border. The extent to which African people see the relationship between all of these struggles is the degree to which they will be able to liberate themselves. Is it not true that Africans were responsible for their own enslavement when they sold other Africans to the Europeans and Arabs? If this is true, then why would blacks in America want to associate with their so-called African brothers? Answer: There is not a race of people who have not had their Benedict Arnolds at some point in time, and Africans are no exception. Slavery is as old as mankind and in many instances most slaves were either prisoners of war, criminals, or people who were unable to pay their debts. The word slave was coined in Europe and described the Eastern Europeans who were enslaved by their Western European cousins. Many African nations also enslaved their prisoners of war but they still respected the humanity of the enslaved individual and they were often allowed to marry and their spouses and offspring remained free. Various religious conflicts have also played a major role in the history of slavery. The Hebrews were subjugated by the Egyptians. The Romans persecuted the Christians, and both the Christians and the Muslims enslaved their prisoners of war during hundreds of years of conflict. But the enslavement of African people was profoundly different. They were enslaved by Christians, Muslims, and Jews for religious and financial reasons. The enslavement of Africans by non-Africans was based solely on race and greed. It has been suggested by some historians that the Africans who sold their prisoners to foreigners were not aware of the horrific fate that awaited them. Other historians have noted that Africans knowingly sold their enemies for a profit. In the end, Even those who betrayed their fellow countrymen were ultimately enslaved themselves.
regarding the disharmonious relationship which is said to exist between Africans and African Americans, one would do well to remember the strategies of divide and conquer which were introduced by the Romans and perfected by the colonist imperialists. I would strongly recommend the reading of The Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams for anyone who is interested in understanding how effectively this strategy was implemented in Africa. I have spoken with numerous Africans who were told by U.S. State Department officials prior to visiting the United States to avoid contact with blacks because they dislike Africans and they will cheat and rob you. The role of the media in harboring feelings of distrust between Africans and African Americans is also partially to blame. The violence between political factions in South Africa is always referred to as black-on-black violence, yet the murder of whites in Eastern, Europe, in Eastern Europe is continually referred to as an ethnic conflict. The battles which have taken place between European nations have never been referred to as white-on-white violence. Instead, they have been called World War One and World War Two. <clears throat> Question. As a Christian, how am I to respond to the information regarding the Nile Valley origins of Christianity? I have been told all my life that the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus died for our sins. Now I am hearing that the Bible was derived from Egyptian texts and that the story of Jesus and Mary is patterned after Isis and, and Horus. There are even those who claim that the Ten Commandments have come from something called the Negative Confessions. What and who am I to believe? Answer. This topic is always a sensitive one for people who have been raised in a Christian environment. Many have been taught to believe that it is sinful to question the Bible, and they accept the entire book at face value. What must be remembered is that there are currently more than 140 different versions of the Holy Bible, and the interpretations of specific texts vary greatly. If you are going to study the Bible, or any book for that matter, you must investigate the background and motives of the author. Millions of people read the King James Version of the Bible, but few, if any, know anything at all about King James. Who was he? What motivated him to undertake such an important task? One religious scholar has stated that the King James, that King James was a man who would make Adolf Hitler look like Santa Claus. If this is a fact, then what will happen to people who accept King James's version of the Bible as the truth? These questions must be asked because a person's concept of religion is too important to leave in the hands of just anybody. It is a historical fact that the same people who have been responsible for interpreting and translating the Bible have also been involved in the enslavement and murder of millions of African and Native Americans. Most of the images associated with biblical personalities have been portrayed as European when they were known to have been people of color. There is a very strong movement within black, Catholic, Baptist, and Methodist churches to reclaim their African origins of Christianity. This is the correct thing to do. Every biblical scholar agrees with the fact that Jesus the Christ was a person of color, but most ministers refuse to acknowledge this reality for fear of the reaction from the congregation. Biblical scholars cannot agree on the date of the birth of Jesus the Christ, but they know he was not born on December 25th. That date was agreed upon by the bishops who attended the Nicene 
Conference in 332 ACE. Because it commemorated the birth of the Son and the Son of God thousands of years before the birth of Jesus the Christ, very few people are aware of the fact that this conference took place and that it determined what doctrines would be incorporated into the Christian religion. This is not to suggest that Christianity is a false religion, but one must be aware of the influence that African religious thought played in its development. There is a great deal of symbolism and allegory in the Bible. One must learn to distinguish between the information which should be taken literally and that which must be evaluated for greater understanding. The only viable solution to this quandary is to read and study all related information. It is impossible for a person to read one book and consider themselves all knowledgeable on the subject matter. One of the reasons African people continue to suffer today is because they still worship the God that was assigned to them by their former slave masters. Just as the African involvement in the historical development of world civilization has been ignored, the African spiritual concepts which have been incorporated into the world's major religious systems have also been forgotten. Human beings have used many names to identify the omnipresent force which has been referred to as God. Names such as Amen, Jehovah, Allah, Buddha, Shango, and many others have been used by people to describe their special relationship to God. It is wrong to deny people the right to believe in their concept of the Creator. And it is sinful to enslave them in the name of God. Any people who would engage in such activities are unworthy of the heavenly reward which they claim to seek. Question. My exposure to what I, what I regard as the accurate history of African people has really turned my life around. For the first time in my life, I have come to value myself as a person, more specifically, a person of African descent. My problem lies in trying to share this knowledge and my enthusiasm with friends and family. They mock my decision to wear African clothing and they claim that I have become too black and that this African stuff is nothing but a lot of nonsense. How do I respond to them? I love them dearly, but I know that what I am seeking is correct for me. Answer, the elation that you feel with regards to your newfound knowledge of self and the sadness and anxiety which it evokes among your family members is quite understandable. You are not alone. Those same feelings have been shared by thousands of brothers and sisters who have been confronted with similar challenges. History is important because everything that we do depends upon it. Doctors, lawyers, and bankers all require background information on their clients. Adopted and orphaned individuals have a profound desire to know their true parents in order to know their true selves. Only people who have been successfully miseducated have no desire to know their past and they resent those who do. Several years ago, Asa G. Hilliard, a well-known, highly respected historian, educational psychologist, and I discussed some of the problems plaguing our communities. Dr. Hilliard described the 10 most prevalent impediments to African unity in the introduction to my first book from the Browder File, 22 Essays on the African-American Experience. He stated, Consider these things carefully and realize that they account for our overall lack of sense of unity and direction. One, we let our names go. The first step towards disorientation is to surrender your name. Two, we have surrendered our way of life, culture. We have stopped speaking the language we knew and we have stopped behaving as African people behave. 
We have lost our way of doing things and we have adopted the ways of people unlike ourselves. Three, we have lost our appetite because we have lost our names and our culture. Even when those among us recreate our culture and present it to us, we no longer have an appetite for it. We have a greater appetite for the culture of people other than ourselves. Four, we have a general loss of memory. Few of us can tell the story of African people without beginning it with slavery. It is as if slavery were the only thing that happened to African people. Five, we have created false memories. Not only have we lost the true memory of African people, we now have a host of other memories which are totally removed from the truth. Six, we lost our land. Anytime you lose your mooring on the land, you lose your capacity to protect your possessions. Seven, we have lost our independent production capacity. We have become, we have become consumers rather than producers. Eight, we have lost independent control of ourselves. We have little or no control of our educational process, our economic situation, our communications, or our politics. Nine, we have lost our sensitivity. We have lost the ability to perceive when people are doing things to us which are detrimental. We accept inaccurate perceptions without criticism. Ten, as a cumulative result of all of the as a cumulative result of all of these things, we have lost our solidarity, our unity. When we lost our unity, we lost our political advantage, economical advantage, and even our mental orientation. We lost a sense of self and a clear sense of belonging. We also lost a clear sense of wholeness, community, and purpose. There is no amount of information alone which can correct all of the problems that I've just identified. A large part of what we must do is to get our memories back intact and regain our orientation. Identification with one's history and culture is truly the first step towards regaining a sense of consciousness. At the same time, however, you must be keenly aware that not all of your friends or family will embrace your move. A happy medium must be found because family is the central component in African culture. To lose your family while finding your culture is a paradoxical dilemma which still leaves you longing for a way to fill the same void which existed prior to your initial discovery. The challenges are many, but they can be overcome with consistency, patience, and devotion to yourself and to those whom you love. Question. I am a young brother who is trying to make it in America. I can appreciate the fact that we are kings and queens in Africa, but how does that help me survive today? What good is it to seek knowledge if it can't help me get a job and put food on the table? Answer. We must remember that a tiny percentage of the population in Africa were kings and queens and members of the holy royal family. The vast majority of the populace in any kingdom, 99.9%, are common folk, farmers, carpenters, healers, and the like. They developed their individual skills, formed trade associations, and offered their services to the community. The king and queen served as models for the development of human potentiality and were often affiliated with the priesthood. In the book, Stolen Legacy, Professor James described the prerequisites for personal development, which he referred to as the Ten Virtues. This ancient tradition originated in the Nile Valley, but has become an integral component in numerous African spiritual societies. The Ten Virtues are 1. Control of Thought. 2. 
control of action. Three, steadfastness. Every action that a person engage in, engages in is a direct result of that person's thought. Correct actions denote correct thought, and steadfastness is the ability to maintain correct th thoughts which will continue to yield the desired results. Four, identity with higher ideals. Five, evidence of a mission. The ability to maintain correct thoughts and actions allows a person to experience the higher ideals that life has to offer. Identification with these higher ideals allows individuals to realize their reason for being, thus to understand their mission in life. Six, evidence of a call to spiritual order. Seven, freedom from resentment, courage. Once people have experienced their mission in life, they are empowered by a call to spiritual order which equips them with the courage necessary to face the resentment they will meet from individuals who lack spiritual understanding. Eight, confidence in the power of the master teacher. Nine, confidence in one's own abilities. 10, preparedness for initiation. Every person who becomes properly motivated will encounter mentors and role models who will prepare them to assume positions of leadership. And when one gains authority, one must have confidence in the ability to exercise it correctly and prepare for the challenges waiting ahead. This cycle begins anew with the initiation into a new level of personal development. Many people have undergone this type of personal transformation. One of the most striking examples which comes to mind is Malcolm X. As a young man, Malcolm personified the incorrigible nature of a person gone astray. After his incarceration, Malcolm's personality was transformed through the acquisition, of, acquisition and application of knowledge of self. Despite the problems America has, this is still one of the best places in the world to live. There are numerous stories of foreigners who have immigrated to America with little or no money and an inability to speak the language, but they achieved a modicum of success despite numerous obstacles. While lacking an understanding of American culture, these people succeeded by relying on their own culture and values. The key to success lies in knowing who you are, tapping into that ancestral and cultural reservoir, and applying that knowledge. The history of the United States is replete with examples of immigrants who have achieved in short duration what millions of black Americans continue to dream of. Question. I am a parent with a child in the public school system. What can I do to ensure that my child is properly educated? Answer. Proper education begins in the home. Parents must take the time to instill within their children a respect for education and an understanding of the power associated with the attainment of knowledge. A teacher can only reinforce within children that which they bring to the classroom as a result of home training. If a child lacks an appreciation for the process of education, the teacher will spend more time disciplining than teaching that child. One of the major problems in most school systems is that the parents are so involved in making a living that they have abdicated their responsibility to their children and the educational process. It is a strong and active parental organization which helps to determine what goes on in the classroom. There is a dire need for volunteers in most classrooms. If a dozen adults in a community could adopt a school and spend one hour a week in the classroom assisting the teacher or tutoring students, it would make a profound difference. An education is an investment in the future of not only the child, but the entire family. Elementary school students who lack proper motivation are 
elementary school students who lack proper motivation are more inclined to drop out of high school, which will have a deteriorative effect on their earning potential as adults, thus greatly hindering their ability to make a consistent financial contribution to their family. The equation is simple. Either you contribute to the education of your children today, or your grandchildren will suffer tomorrow, and you will have to take care of them. How can one best begin the process? One, turn off the television. Two, sit down and read with your children and discuss what you've read in a family setting. Three, expose your children to new experiences regularly. Four, monitor the behavior of the adults in the household as well as the behavior of the youth. In most instances, children are a direct reflection of the attitudes of the adults in their immediate environment. Being a parent is a full-time job, but it is also one of the most rewarding experiences you will ever have in life if you perform your job successfully. Question, what is karma? I am vaguely familiar with the philosophy, but I am confused as to the degree to which the events in one's life are predetermined. If life is predetermined, then what role does free will play? Answer. Karma is a concept which can be simply translated to mean cause and effect. It is a belief that the events one experiences in this lifetime were determined by actions set in motion in previous lifetimes. It is closely equated to the principles espoused in the Golden Rule. In other words, what you do to others will be done unto you, or more specifically, what you do to yourself will also be done unto you. Belief in karma encourages ethical behavior in order for one to receive their reward in the next life, heaven. In recent years, I have come to realize that there exists a great affinity between the principles of karma and the Nile Valley nature ma'at. Ma'at represents the principles of righteousness, truth, justice, order, reciprocity, etc., the 42 admonitions of Ma'at, also referred to as declarations of innocence, were the determinatives against which the soul of the deceased was judged. It was this ancient belief in the judgment of the soul after death that motivated the living to behave righteously by applying the precepts of Ma'at in their daily lives. The issues of predetermination become more clearly understood when one knows that the events which one experiences are the direct result of circumstances set in motion by one's thoughts and actions. The ten virtues therefore become the instrument through which karma or ma'at operates. Granted, there are events which affect us that are outside our ability to control, but how often we are influenced by them is determined by our actions. Whether we are in the right place at the right time is determined by our desire to go someplace. There is no such thing as chance, coincidence, or accident in a universe ruled by law and divine order. What has been commonly referred to as the Egyptians' preoccupation with death is in fact a profound preoccupation with life. Their writings were mistakenly referred to as the Book of the Dead, but the people of Kemet originally called them the Book of the Coming Forth by Day, which was in essence the Book of Life. Their writing was called Medunetra, the word of the principles of creation, and they expressed a profound understanding of the reality that what one thinks, what one speaks, what one does, one becomes. 
I have often been asked the question, what happened to the people of Kemet? The obvious answer is they lost their history and they died, but the history and the spirit of Kemet and the Nile Valley and the Nile Valley is very much alive. It is being rediscovered by hundreds of people every day. It is my hope and desire for people to understand that it is only through the study and application of knowledge, history, that they will be given the tools with which to build for eternity.